Hi, it's Zane Horowitz in the Oregon Poison Center for the February, end of February 2019 Journal Club. We're talking about up in smoke, a variety of things you can smoke or vape. Um, we have a lot of homegrown articles this month, no pun intended there, but um, we're going to start out a little bit with one of the cases that started us in researching this, which is from uh, one of our faculty, Matt Noble, who again, we have author in the room on a case of a pediatric ingestion of the e-cigarette liquid refills. Thanks, Anne. Um, so, yeah, this is a case report uh, from uh, my time as a fellow here at the Oregon Poison Center. Um, it was published in 2016 um, in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And um, it describes a case that we saw uh, in here and kind of followed along. And, and it's, um, I think its benefit is that we had some nice uh, data to go along with um, an interesting clinical presentation. So, with that said, the background is mostly uh, of the article is mostly describing the physiologic effects of nicotine. Uh, in the second paragraph, we sort of detail um, uh, sort of nicotine as an alkaloid, and it stimulates central nervous system um, and autonomic and somatic ganglia. Uh, through really a variety of different molecular mechanisms and cellular mechanisms. Um, when nicotine binds to its postsynaptic nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, there is typically a ligand-gated ion channel opening, which leads to downstream cation influx and then depolarization and uh, eventual uh, excitation of the central and peripheral nervous system. Um, however, in cases of prolonged or excessive nicotine exposure, um, there can be some interesting clinical effects uh, and uh, pharmacologically that looks like loss of receptor specificity or um, occasional paradoxic receptor blockade. Um, and exactly why those things happen aren't entirely clear. Um, but uh, parasympathetic effects rather than sympathetic effects can be seen and cholinergic toxicity as opposed to uh, anticholinergic toxicity as well as depolarizing neuromuscular blockade results. Um, the third paragraph details a little bit about what um, is delivered by a conventional cigarette, as well as some nicotine replacement systems, just to give the reader a sense of putting this all into context. Uh, and so a typical conventional cigarette has up to 2.4 milligrams of nicotine, and an experienced user with deep inhalation um, usually absorbs uh, almost all of that and plasma nicotine levels will um, uh, rapidly peak uh, sort of within minutes um, and can reach up to 50 nanograms per milliliter. Um, things are a little bit different after say lozenge use or gum use um, and sort of with respect to what this case report is talking about, uh, the nicotine absorption for electronic cigarettes uh, is quite a bit different and varies basically depending on the concentration of the liquid nicotine that you put in the device. Um, and so uh, we looked at one study that showed that the nicotine peak plasma concentration actually happens a little bit slower after e-cigarette use than conventional cigarette use. Um, and we also found that uh, Pharmacokinetics of nicotine, um, so its effect in the body, vary considerably after oral exposure rather than inhalational exposure. Um, 
And uh, while there are a variety of factors, we did find that an alkaline pH increases the absorption of uh, the nicotine from the mucosa. Then we talk a little bit about me metabolism of nicotine uh, in the body and um, the primary metabolized cotinine. Uh, this is what, if, you, if any of you take a um, drug test from your insurance company to see whether you're insurable at a higher level, they're going to look to see if you're a smoker. Um, and what they're looking for is cotinine. Um, it has an average elimination half-life of about 19 hours. And generally speaking, we think about a drug uh, as needing about five half-lives to uh, be completely excreted from the body. So a habitual cigarette smoker should have detectable cotinine in their urine for up to 100 hours or so after their last cigarette use. Just for an interesting trivial side note. Anyway, um, and I spent a little bit of time sort of trying to subtly refute this notion that gets published way too often, which is there is a lethal um, exposure dose of nicotine. Um, and if you kind of dive into this literature, uh, it was cited a long, long time ago uh, as 60 milligrams. Um, and the more you look into it, you kind of realize that's just a guess. It's a sort of an extrapolation by um, a chemist uh, based on super weak data um, not quite a hundred years ago. But it's one of those sort of dogmatic things that's just gotten perpetuated. So uh, I cite a more recent um, literature review which was a lot more scientific about it um, and sort of settled on this oral LD50 of somewhere between 6.5 to 13 milligrams per kilogram. Okay, anyway, there's the background. The case report is really kind of interesting. There was a six-year-old girl, um, and she had sprained her ankle about a week or so prior to this particular event. And me, she had been getting um, ibuprofen at measured uh, doses at regular intervals by her parents um, for some mild musculoskeletal pain. And on one particular afternoon, her father sort of realized that she was due for her dose, so uh, took the nicotine or <laughs> took the ibuprofen bottle out of the refrigerator, which is apparently where they keep it normally, or so he thought, and <clears throat> filled up a, a very carefully measured 10 milliliter, 10 milliliter oral dose, um, and sort of administered that to her. She immediately complained of this burning sensation, um, and it seemed very odd. So he took a small sip, realized suddenly that it was there, nicotine refill liquid, his and his wife's, and so alerted her, the mom, she was there. Mom tried to sort of uh, manually induce vomiting of the child while dad called us and an ambulance. Anyway, they, um, the paramedics arrived, they sort of noted her initially to have, um, you know, kind of an on presentation. Uh, she had, prior to their arrival, sort of lost consciousness, according to the dad, and was having these jerky movements of her extremities. When the paramedics arrived, they noted that she was conscious and breathing uh, with sort of eyes open, but not really responding to uh, commands or following commands. Uh, they checked a CBG, which was 188, uh, and they put in an IV, and they drove straight to our emergency department. So here, she arrived about a little less than half an hour after the exposure. She had vital signs as listed here, notable for mild tachycardia, a little bit of hypothermia, um, and normal pulse uh, oxygenation um, on Romare. 
And her mental status, according to the uh, providers that treated her, was sort of vacillating between agitation and unresponsiveness. Um, shortly thereafter, she developed bradycardia, as well as vomiting, diaphoresis, fasciculations, um, obtundation, and these copious secretions. Um, so they treated her initially with some antiemetics, uh, and then rapidly moved to intubating her using standard medications. After the successful intubation, after one attempt, they did insert a nasogastric tube, tried to do lavage, and then administered a dose of activated charcoal, um, and then main maintained her on sedation uh, and admitted her to the pediatric intensive care unit. Um, essentially, we got blood on her arrival and we got urine a little while into her ICU stay. Uh, her clinical course was relatively unremarkable. She did vomit a little bit while intubated in the ICU. To my knowledge, did not develop any charcoal aspiration pneumonitis, fortunately, um, although part of that may have been because her airway was protected at the time. But she did quite well overnight and was discharged the following day with a normal neuro exam. Um, what's interesting about this case is that we had access, we worked with uh, researchers down at UCSF, so we have very accurate and very specific and sensitive data about the concentration. Um, we tested her urine, we tested her blood, we actually got a hold of the uh, home bottle, uh, both the home bottles, the bottle of liquid nicotine that the parents had purchased online as well as that sort of ibuprofen bottle that they were using to mix up um, their dilution. So we tested all of that, um, the data are here, they're listed. Essentially what it comes down to is that um, uh, the patient ingested, we think, about 703 milligrams of nicotine, uh, and she was 10 kilo, uh, 20 kilos, so 35 milligrams per kilo of liquid nicotine. And to kind of put that into perspective um, with what I told you earlier on about the sort of oral LD50 dose being somewhere between 6.5 and 13.5. But that's all based on prior conjecture. So it's a pretty significant ingestion dose and exposure. Um, and she had uh, pretty classic symptoms clinically of a nicotine overdose. Uh, and you can kind of go back through and see her initial sort of uh, jerking movements and sympathetic uh, symptoms, and then rapidly progressing to sort of parasympathetic and cholinergic toxidrome, um, i.e. her obtundation and her copious secretions, uh, vomiting, diaphoresis, just sort of wet all over. Um, and then the, the rest of the discussion really talks about uh, what the parents had done as far as purchasing liquid nicotine refill liquid uh, on the internet, where they got it, what they thought they were buying, how they diluted it, um, and what they intended to use was a 30 milligram per milliliter concentration that's relatively common among the commercially prepared e-cigarette devices. Um, again, there's a range, but 30 milligrams per mil is um, appropriate, I would say, for users. Um, the problem is, though, that the, uh, the product that they purchased online had 234% of the advertised concentration. So um, really unreliable packaging, uh, really no quality control, and even though they did the dilution correctly, or so they thought, um, they would have been using twice as much themselves, or, or they were using twice as much as they intended to 
Um, and of course, their, their daughter was exposed to a significant amount of nicotine, as we already said. Yeah, so, yeah sorry. Uh, so comments, questions? I mean, the basic gist of the article was just to kind of alert people to um, what we had seen in the case report uh, demonstrating pretty nice nicotinergic toxicity and to kind of raise awareness that this, with the increasing use and popularity of liquid nicotine and electronic cigarette usage, um, what is probably going to be a more commonplace exposure. Yeah, and it was a, a very nice, well done case report with documentation that it actually occurred, not just that the symptoms matched the purported ingestion, but the actual uh, documented levels in the bottle, uh, what they took, and levels in, in the patient and the urine. So, um, although it is exactly what nicotine does to you, uh, why it happened is probably more important than exactly saying what nicotine does. So a, a case report is always a good starting point to say, well, gee, I wonder how often this is really happening. The next step is, is a little epidemiology. Um, that's nice when one fellow passes off the baton of research to the next fellow. So for our second author in the room, we have our senior fellow, Adrian, to tell us what she took off with that study next. Yeah, so this uh, is titled An Epidemiologic and Clinical Description of E-Cigarette Toxicity. This was published in October 2018 in Clinical Toxicology. Um, Matt gave us a good background, like intro, so I won't go over that. But essentially, this was a prospective observational study in which we looked at the characteristics of the exposures to e-cigarette devices and e-liquids that were um, called into the Oregon Poison Center. And this was over a 42-month period, um, July 2014 to through December 2017. There was a standard data collection instrument, which is on page two, you can see um, what kind of things we have. Um, and this is filled out for all e-cig exposure calls to the Oregon Poison Center. And as you guys know, the catchment area for um, the Oregon Poison Center isn't just Oregon, it is also Alaska, Guam, and the Northern Marianas Islands. Um, so these cases were prospectively identified by the Specialists in Poison Information, or SPIES, once um, they got that initial call, and they then would insert this collection instrument into the Poison Center medical records. Um, and the information that they collected included obviously demographic information, kind of the circumstance of the exposure, um, the type of exposure, whether it was to the actual device or if it was a refill container. Um, the product name, concentration, estimated volume ingested, and then the symptoms, treatment, and disposition. And then all of these patients um, were followed up in four hours to reevaluate their symptoms. Um, there was a total of 284 charts that were reviewed during this period, but 19 cases were excluded. Um, they did not actually have exposure to e-cigarettes. So of those remaining 265 charts that met criteria, inclusion criteria, there were 193 that involved children and 72 that involved adults. Uh, the median age was two years and almost a lot of the exposures occurred in the zero to five age group. So I kind of break down the exposures into kind of pediatric and adult and go kind of the, the route of the exposure. But overall, um, the pediatric exposures, only about a one quarter of all of these exposures became symptomatic, um, and very few, only 3%, remained symptomatic on follow-up in four hours. Um, of those 72% that were initially asymptomatic, 
all except two remained so, and those two children just had non-intractable vomiting without any other severe symptoms. Um, there were five children who developed pretty severe symptoms, um, agitation, tachycardia, vomiting, etc. And of those more severely poisoned kids, um, those were the ones that remained symptomatic at that hour follow-up. So then just going through the like exposure um, types, so when we first look at the pediatric liquid ingestion, um, most kids got a pretty small amount um, and initial symptoms were evident um, in 32% of the cases and the onset of these symptoms occurred almost immediately after the ingestion in the majority of these cases uh, and the most commonly reported symptom is vomiting. Again, I do touch up on that case that Matt just discussed because um, it really was uh, something that needs to be highlighted there. I won't go into that, but when we then looked at the inhalational exposures, there were 10 children who inhaled e-cigarettes um, 60% of those became symptomatic. Um, there was, there were two unrelated cases where teens actually inhaled um, fumes from like a vape pen after it had exploded. Um, and those uh, folks got a little cough and throat irritation. Um, there was a 15 year old who was dared to vape as many times as he could and he developed tachycardia, nausea, vomiting, and blurry vision. And then there was another uh, teenager, 13-year-old, who had a seizure, developed tachycardia to the 170s, hallucination, sedation, and drooling after he was vaping, quote, many times. Um, onto the pediatric dermal and mucosal exposures, um, these kids didn't, or they were less likely to develop significant toxicity. Um, these kids were often found like handling a refill container or an e-cigarette device or um, like sucking on the e-cigarette device. Again, most of these people develop pretty mild symptoms. On to the adult exposures. So adult exposures most often involve refill fluid and um, exposures are related to ingestion of the e-liquid e in 32% of cases. Um, when we compared with this um, with children, the majority of adults exposed to devices or liquids were symptomatic and they were more likely to remain symptomatic on follow-up. There were 14 adults who were initially asymptomatic and all except one remained so, and that person just developed nausea only. Um, as far as the adult mucosal ex uh, exposures, um, the majority of these patients, 87%, developed symptoms, um, and in several of these instances, <coughs> the device actually leaked or broke while they were um, vaping. Um, there was two that just developed kind of localized symptoms, irritation in their mouth, um, but 11 of these uh, patients with mucosal exposures actually developed uh, systemic symptoms, uh, nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, diarrhea, headache, um, altered mental status. Um, as far as like the dermal exposures, there were 13 uh, in adults and 16% um, of those folks became symptomatic. There was an interesting case of a exposure that involved this 25-year-old vape shop worker, and he actually spilled two very large bottles of e-cigarette fluid on his hands. And over the hour, uh, the next hour, he developed vomiting and was seen in the emergency department where he had kind of continuous vomiting for about four hours. And then he also developed some mild bradycardia. Um, we did speculate though that the exposure may have involved both like dermal and inhalational exposure because of the large quantity he may have 
kind of uh, inhaled some of it. Um, so ocular exposures occurred in 14 adults, and in half of those, this involved inadvertent administration of the liquid the eye. Um, in all seven of those cases, the individual administered the e-liquid thinking it was our ophthalmic drops, and um, people developed redness in their eye, pain, and blurry vision. Four of those individuals were wearing contact lenses at the time of the exposure, um, but none of those people actually developed systemic toxicity. Um, we identified 71 specific e-cigarette products and there's only one product that was involved in more than two cases. Um, I gave some examples of product names. I'll just kind of highlight some of the interesting ones. So Tiger, Tiger's Blood, Maxoff, um, Imperial Hookah, uh, Chillax, and Go Green Dragon. Interesting. Um, product label nicotine concentrations were identified in 125 cases, ranged from zero mg per ml to 100 mg per ml. Um, the mean concentration was 14. Um, there was one product that contained 50 mg per ml in a 60 ml container, so that comes out to a total of 3,000 milligrams of nicotine. And we found no correlation between the product concentration and the development of symptoms. Uh, there was lots of flavors that were listed on these products. Oftentimes they had names of food or candy that might be attractive to young kids, like root beer float or creamsicle. Um, and then other names just referred to like drug use or popular culture. So as far as the discussion, you know, consistent with uh, the literature that we have already, our data demonstrates the majority of exposures occur in young children, um, especially those less than five years of age. Um, a lot of these cases were due to like exploratory behavior um, and mostly from like drinking or sucking on the actual refill container instead of the device. Um, several of the PEDS patients developed systemic symptoms consistent with nicotine toxicity even after ingesting or inhaling um, nicotine uh, containing fluids even if it was just taste exposures. Um, small amounts, and that uh, has been previously reported as well. Again, we uh, showed that adults were much more likely to be symptomatic compared to children, and again, they were more likely to remain symptomatic. A large proportion of adult cases were due to topical or exposures and excessive vaping, um, and we do note that most of the excessive vaping cases were in e-cigarette novices, so those teenagers. Um, we did note several cases of systemic symptoms after dermal exposure. Again, this has been previously noted um, and suggests that there may be significant exposure either from inhalation or dermal absorption after like a kid spills on themselves. Again, highlighting those seven individuals who inadvertently administered the e-liquid into their eyes, <laughs> thinking it was their ophthalmic drops. Um, you know, it suggests that people who use therapeutic ophthalmic drops may be at risk for this, especially because they probably can't see if they don't have their <laughs> contact lenses. And, um, and we suggest that this is probably because of the similarities between the size and the shape of the containers. Um, that this has only been reported uh, once in the literature, and it was a lady who um, administered the e-liquid thinking it's her chloramphenicol eye drops. Um, so, as Matt mentioned already, their e-liquid comes in kind of a variety of strengths and concentration frequently measured in milligrams per ml. 
But we noted that a, the majority of the manufacturers drop the per ml. So on a bottle, it will just, so if it's six mgs per keg, they'll just put six milligrams on there. So if you say like there's a 60 ml bottle that doesn't have just six milligrams, that is 360 milligrams. Um, and when you look at the literature out there, there's been investigators that have analyzed the contents of these e-liquids and have reported significant inconsistencies between what's labeled um, and what's actually in the bottle. And even liquids have, that have been um, noted to be nicotine-free have had concentrations up to 12%. Uh, again, we didn't find any pattern of um, between like the product concentration and what um, significant toxicity. So um, prior studies have really lacked information about kind of the duration of clinical effects and we really wanted to address this by prospectively identifying these patients and then kind of man uh, mandating a four-hour follow-up to kind of reevaluate the symptoms. Again, the vast majority of both children and adults became symptomatic almost immediately and um, their symptoms tended to be short-lived. Uh, limitations, obviously, this was prospective, but there was some data that was missing. You know, we weren't always able to get all that information, like the brand concentration, et cetera. And then, obviously, we weren't able to confirm nicotine concentrations uh, in these patients, so obviously, these people could have, um, you know, suffered toxicity from other exposures, potentially. And like all poisons, center reporting is voluntary, and so obviously this this likely underestimates the total number of exposures, and also kind of the severity of the adverse effects, etc. So in conclusions, you know symptoms of toxicity in these settings tend to be mild or severe and tend to occur very quickly and resolve quickly. Um, and they're rarely delayed, and in the majority of cases, they don't require treatment um, at a healthcare facility. Um, and we thought this is probably useful information for poison centers, uh, as well as like EDs, general practitioners, um, when they're coming up with their own guidelines, um, potentially, when they're trying to manage these patients. Yeah, no, very good. I mean, a, a good bit of epidemiology jumping off of the case report. If you just read case reports like Matt's and several others that appeared, you would think these products are horrible. I'm not saying they're good, but that these children are going to get intubated and be near death every time they're exposed. And every time we get an exposure, we're going to send them in. Whereas, in fact, we find that people declare themselves pretty early on. There's a prospective point center study rather than a usual retrospective point center study where we just look at the old charts and see what we can put together from the data, whereas it's had a very clear-cut, very extensive symptom checklist that people had to ask, you know, there's just seizures or agitation or vomiting, et cetera. So we got a better handle on what the real, I think, spectrum of symptoms were. So yes, they're at risk, but I think we figure out who is at risk pretty early on, and you can certainly use the when in doubt it was a high concentration or almost, you almost feel that saying from your study, what it says in the bottle doesn't matter because it could be zero and it could be a lot or it could say a lot and it could be not so much. So that doesn't help us as opposed to other labeled pharmaceuticals where so many milligrams of a tablet or liquid preparation would be used as triage, where in this case, I think uh, the onset of symptoms is really the triage criteria. 
but um, adds a bit more and hopefully also prevents us from literally sending in every case as the numbers of these have grown even since this study was done and on a nationwide basis. It's just an accelerating upward curve, uh, especially young children exposures. I'll backtrack a little bit and just talk about the health effects in general of vaping electronic cigarettes. It's a study that's about a year before both of these. And to tell us about that, we have Tony. Hey, uh, yeah, so this is the, uh, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016. It's called The Health Effects of Electronic Cigarettes, and really is just an overview of uh, sort of current data uh, about um, the potential effects of electronic cigarettes, mostly as they're meant to be used, unlike the last uh, two things we talked about where people had, had you know, sort of inadvertently used nicotine or ingested nicotine in ways that they weren't supposed to. This is really about routine use of electronic cigarettes. So um, they, they go into a little bit of um, background about how this works. So, so if you are not familiar with um, with electronic cigarettes, it's, there's a nicotine liquid that is in a solvent, and the heating element essentially creates a nicotine vapor, and that's how uh, the, the nicotine is delivered into the lungs. Um, so obviously there are some differences between that and conventional cigarettes, uh, and we'll go into that a little bit. Um, but the, the popularity of these things, um, these electronic cigarettes, is increasing pretty rapidly. So in 2010, they point out 1.8% of U.S. adults had used any cigarette in the past, whereas by 2013, so just three years later, 13% of people uh, had reported using it. Um, and then, um, you know, the other thing that happens is that people who wouldn't normally have used tobacco are starting to use these electronic cigarettes. Um, so a third of current uh, e-cigarette users have essentially never smoked a tobacco product um, or were former tobacco smokers. So people that had either quit or people who had never smoked tobacco are using these electronic cigarette products. Um, in addition, uh, it seems like there's at least some level of marketing towards kids. Obviously, these come in a variety of flavors that seem like they would be appealing to, um, to children. There's a number of very cotton candy flavor and manga flavor and things like that. And, uh, it says 263,000 middle school and high school students who have never smoked a conventional cigarette have reported using e-cigarettes. So among people who would normally not be using traditional tobacco, um, this seems to be very popular. Um, we talk about the marketing, we talk about the growth of the industry. So um, the U.S. market for cigarettes, uh, sorry, e-cigarettes is now uh, worth about $1.5 billion at the time this article was written, and it was projected to grow by almost 25% through 2018. So this is a rapidly growing market. <clears throat> so um, one of the things that these are marketed as, um, but are not really FDA approved as, is a smoking cessation aid. Uh, we unfortunately don't have a lot of reliable data about how good these are about uh, as far as getting people to switch from traditional smoked tobacco to, uh, to these e-cigarettes. There have been a couple of randomized trials. Uh, one was a 12-month randomized trial to look at 300 smokers in Italy who did not intend to quit initially, and they had them use these e-cigarettes and essentially found that there uh, really wasn't a huge reduction in the, not, nothing statistically significant in the amount of um, a reduction as far as the traditional cigarettes that they were using each day. So that was essentially, um, that study basically said that this was not an effective means of, of uh, quitting. 
Um, on the other hand, there have been other trials that showed things like just sort of subjective like craving. So you know, the re one of the reasons people go get another cigarette is because they have a cigarette craving. So this, uh, at least in another study, helped to stave off some of the cravings. Uh, from acute withdrawal or like uh, short-term withdrawal of, of tobacco. Um, and then there was another trial that showed um, that people smoked significantly fewer conventional cigarettes over uh, sort of an eight-week period where they were, where they were using these e-cigarettes. And so there seems to be somewhat mixed data. Um, the other, the thing they point out is all of these old studies were in essentially these first generation e-cigarettes and I guess there have been, they don't go into uh, a lot of the details about the different generations of cigarettes or e-cigarettes, but there have been second and third generation and fourth generation e-cigarettes that essentially try to uh, better mimic the uh, traditional tobacco cigarettes. And so these are all in first generation, these studies are all in first generation e-cigarettes and so um, it's really hard to extrapolate information about those cigarettes to say that current, more modern e-cigarettes wouldn't be as good uh, because they should be more like um, a, a tobacco cigarette. <coughs> so um, then they go on to talk about um, sort of positive and negative effects um, and uh, of, of these e-cigarettes. So they talk about um, the constituents of the liquids and aerosols. So obviously this nicotine is put in with uh, some sort of solvent or oil of some sort. Some of them are, it's vegetable glycerin or propylene glycol is pretty standard. Um, and then uh, they also have a lot of like flavorings in them to create um, all of the, all of the um, nice flavors that they can use to market to you. Um, so most of these things like vegetable glycerin and propylene glycol are fairly safe uh, in ingestion. There have been cases where um, they found that uh, at least one brand actually had ethylene glycol in it, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably just, um, you know, maybe they were cutting corners or whatever it was, but ethylene glycol essentially, as you may know, is not FDA approved for human ingestion in anything whatsoever. So. Um, you know, whether or not that turned into any toxicity, you know, it probably didn't, uh, but certainly we need to consider what's in the contents of these. And so in table one here, if you guys have the article pulled up, they sort of list all of the different, um, all of the different uh, common ingredients in these e-cigarette liquids. So you've got your glycerol, propylene glycol, and nicotine, and then all these other compounds essentially that they've detected. So acetone, acrolein, butane diene, and the, the other thing you have to consider is what gets produced when it's heated up because it's heated up pretty significantly and so other compounds or new compounds can be produced. Um, many of the flavorings are actually aldehydes. Um, we're not sure if these really pose a risk to people, uh, but certainly there is some thought about people who already have respiratory disease or things like that, uh, reactive airway disease. Um, these could be potentially harmful to them and then over time people can get uh, inflammation and so forth in their, in their uh, lungs, we think. Um, let's see, um, let's move on from that. So yeah, there's essentially, to sort of summarize that part, there's a ton of chemicals in these that we, we just don't know how they, we don't know how they affect people over long-term inhalational use. They really just haven't been studied and so that is a potential thing that we have to evaluate when we're evaluating the safety of these products overall. Um, so then they talk about biological effects uh, both in vitro and in, in vivo. So in trying to look at what these aerosols and what these liquids are doing, people have exposed essentially 
lot of these liquids. Um, and essentially, they've decided that you know a lot of these studies use different cell types, and so it's very difficult to consistently say what um, what these e-cigarette aerosols are doing to these cells. But they do seem to widely have effects in in almost every study. Um, so. Um, Uh, they talk about um, uh, ne like uh, exposure of mice to nebulized uh, nicotine containing, so more like in, in vivo studies, and they have found that their lungs uh, have increased inflammation and oxidative stress, so that's another thing we have to, to look at. Some of these mice have been, after exposure to uh, nicotine smoke, have been um, less able to clear bacteria from their lungs and more likely to develop pneumonias. Um, and so there's just a number of mechanisms and things that happen that, that really just need more study. Uh, there's some animal data, very little human data, and so again, there's a lot to consider when we're looking at how safe these things are. Um, they talk about um, effects on human health. Um, so, um, you know, the, the thing that we have to compare these to, these cigarettes to, is um, if you're comparing them in someone who already smokes, is it better for that person than uh, than continuing to smoke if they're able to use this to get off, to get off of traditional tobacco smoke? Uh, that's really what you're comparing it to. On the other hand, in like say these kids who would never have otherwise used tobacco, um, you know that you're comparing it essentially to them having never used tobacco, uh, and so that's a factor that you need to look at when we're we need to look at when we're looking at whether these are safe or not, and um, and. Um, it looks like, I mean, as, as far as the data goes, there's some, again, some data that says that um, e-cigarettes may be associated with better sort of short-term and long-term health outcomes than tobacco, which, you know, smoke tobacco, which seems fairly obvious. I mean, you're using a vapor instead of all of the, you know, carcinogenic stuff in, um, in uh, tobacco smoke. So, um, they talk about a little bit about pregnancy, and while we should really be um, discouraging any use of tobacco for our nicotine-containing products in pregnancy, um, this is sort of the lesser of two evils as far as that goes. So if you can have someone use an electronic cigarette, it's probably better for the fetus, etc. Um, let's see, and then they talk about physiologic effects of e-cigarette use. So. Um, you know, it's probably, again, probably less harmful than tobacco smoking. Um, your heart rate and blood pressure um, don't spike quite as much after using e cigarette compared to a normal cigarette. Of course, that was a tobacco, tobacco industry funded study. Um, <laughs> although they basically said that e cigarettes don't cause as much vital sign abnormalities as normal tobacco. So, um, they also talk about tobacco having been reported to cause uh, delay in myocardial relaxation and increase in um, arterial stiffness, and that just is not apparently observed after e-cigarette use, according to at least a couple of studies. Um, they have been reported to um, to have changes in acute pulmonary function after use, um, but there is some data about people who have reactive airway disease switching from um, switching from traditional tobacco to e-cigarettes, and that having uh, and those people having improvement in their asthma symptoms, um, and so overall, uh, you know, we don't we don't really know about the long-term effects of these. A lot of these, a lot of the chemicals and chemicals that are created in the aerosol 
uh, form of these uh, of the nicotine has really not been studied. It hasn't been studied well in vitro. It hasn't been studied well in animal models, and it certainly hasn't been studied well in humans. And so we essentially really don't know. The, the really the only thing that can be said is it's probably better than smoking regular tobacco. And if that's what you're comparing it to, then they're probably you know that's that's your better alternative. But um, that being said, the, the the downside that comes with it is a ton of people who would not normally have used nicotine are is, you know this is very popular among people who wouldn't have used it anyway. So uh, we have to consider that as well. Yeah, no, very good. I mean, this, this article sort of sets up what we're going to talk about next. This is written a few years ago, and sort of the argument from the makers of e-cigarettes have always been, well, look, it's going to be safer than cigarettes. And people said, well, you can't say that. There really isn't any data. And their other argument was, well, this may help you quit <laughs> smoking, except that it actually accelerated the number of people exposed to a form of smoking in that people who never used any form of tobacco were using e-cigarettes. But really the the big thing in the room is is really does it work and everyone seems to want to think that it probably isn't any better than anything else we have for quitting cigarettes until just a few weeks ago a big study came out which sort of was the blockbuster study we're leading up to talk about i'm going to let adam tell you all the details about that one sure thanks Zane. um so this is um the article entitled a randomized trial of e-cigarettes versus nicotine replacement therapy and this is by hayek and others um, and so this this article kind of um, piggybacks of where Tony left off of we're assuming that compared to cigarettes, um, e-cigarettes are safer. And so the question that they sought to answer was, is this a better way to quit smoking? Um, so this was uh, uh, this was a study done in the United Kingdom, um, looking at patients in the UK National Health Services who presented to their clinic who self-identified as wishing to quit smoking and they were randomized to one of two groups, either to an e-cigarette arm, uh, where they were essentially started on e-cigarettes with nicotine uh, liquid and would essentially vape, uh, or kind of the more conventional or classic uh, methods of uh, nicotine replacement therapy, that being lozenges, patches, gum, uh, nasal sprays, things like that. And so a total of 886 uh, uh, subjects were randomized and then they were uh, reassessed at uh, different intervals, but finally at one year, and was, it was determined what was the abstinence rate from cigarettes in e each group. And the results are pretty interesting. Uh, they found that 18% um, of patients had uh, maintained abstinence in the e-cigarette group, compared with 9.9% in the uh, conventional nicotine replacement therapy group. Um, as with all studies, there are lots of asterisks, but it did show that there was a fairly significant um, improvement by their study with the e-cigarette group. Um, so, just diving into it a little more deeply. Uh, so they they uh, initially screened approximately uh, 2,000 patients, and uh, after some initial uh, large numbers of patients were not eligible for the study or excluded for various reasons, um, then uh, that was settled on this 886 patients. Um, they were randomized using a computerized um, you know, random randomization, which is probably the best and fairest way to do it. Um, the e-cigarette group, they were given an initial supply, but then told to purchase their own further supply later in the year. And the conventional group, they were uh, allowed to use essentially whatever they wanted of the conventional treatment. So again, that's lozenges, patches, gums, sprays, kind of what what the other things that we have available. 
Um, they were then, both groups were given uh, support. Essentially, they were checked in on and encouraged to maintain uh, abstinence from smoking um, and then monitored. Now, um, as uh, Dr. Matt Noble uh, initially mentioned, the conatine, uh, sorry, conine is uh, the preferred test for, the biochemical test for abstinence in, for example, insurance screening and things like that. However, it's not useful in uh, patients who are using nicotine replacement therapy because everyone will be positive. So the test uh, that's used to, the biochemical test for abstinence here is uh, carbon monoxide. Uh, as most of us know, the half-life or you know, detectable carbon monoxide presence in serum is much shorter uh, than the conitine. So this can only be tested for about 24 hours after. So that is just one limitation of the study. Um, there was uh, also um, one death in each group that's just important to note, but no, no significant difference between each group. Um, and um, this study was adequately powered, and it was found that the number needed to treat with e-cigarettes was uh, 12, which is actually pretty good. Um, other just uh, discoveries of the study was, uh, for the most part, respiratory symptoms were improved in the e-cigarette group uh, with decreased cough and phlegm production, uh, and patients kind of reported that they enjoyed using it more. So essentially, to summarize the study, it does look like e-cigarettes do have an improvement over other forms of nicotine replacement therapy um, based on these data. Yeah, I mean, this was, like I say, a, a breakthrough study. This wasn't supported by the industry. <laughs> None of the authors at least declared that they had any ties to any sort of companies making any of these products or e-cigarettes <laughs> or anything else. And they had a big number. I mean, it wasn't one of these pilot studies where we did 20, 30 people <laughs> or 800 people with different arms. It, it wasn't blinded because you knew you were either vaping or using it. You know, gum, <laughs> uh, but um, they use a pretty good, um, you know, endpoint for both questionnaires and trying to kind of verify that they're actually absent by lack of exhaled uh, carbon monoxide mm -hmm. testing. And you know, as we look historically at the ability to quit, it's hard. The fact that at one year, 18% of the cigarette group were not smoking is reasonably impressive. And unfortunately, this throws not water but fire at the argument of the e-cigarette manufacturers that perhaps these things if used correctly and encouraged with behavioral therapy might be as good or better at least by this, statistically mm -hmm. better, than anything we have now to get people to stop smoking. I wasn't compared to things like Shantex or any of those other things. Mm -hmm. but even the result of quitting with that is not all that terribly uh, impressive, statistically speaking. Mm -hmm. But boy, this was sort of like a blockbuster for the last uh, several weeks. It's been talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what it's going to do to the cigarette uh, legislation. Hopefully our goal as poison centers, though, is to try to keep these out of the hands of children who are inadvertently eating the liquids and adults who are inadvertently leaving it where kids can find it. And whether as an adult you choose to use this legal product or not, entirely up to you. Obviously, we want to try to prevent as many people from being initiated with cartoon characters mm -hmm. and cute flavors and caricatures into a nicotine addiction. But as far as those who are already smoking, it may 
keep completely open mind, it may really be a better option for at least some people who are interested in fighting. I think one of the interesting things, though, is that of the participants who were abstaining and no longer smoking at a year, of the e-cigarette users, 80% were still using the e-cigarettes, but only 9% of the nicotine replacement users were still requiring the nicotine replacement. So yes, I, you know, the nicotine replacement is probably not as preferable, but it's also that means they're not going to keep using it forever, whereas I, you, you almost wonder how long the e-cigarette users, is this really something to quit, or is it something just a transition and now this is your new vice? Right, exactly. It's but not smoking anymore, uh, but they're vaping now instead. Um, and is that the unanswered question we'll have to wait 30, 50 years for is what the health effects of vaping are going to be compared to cohort controls who continue to smoke or historical controls who used to smoke, and mm. um, given the advance of uh, our ability to detect things like cancer and everything else, we don't know. And it's not going to be knowable until the end of our lifetimes, probably. Mm -hmm. So to change gears a little bit, um, again, author in the room, um, hot off the presses, uh, an article on the other thing you could smoke, uh, which is <laughs> cannabis, although a lot of this has to do with edibles, it's been the growing uh, product here in um, Oregon. So once again, uh, Max Noble is going to tell us about what his research showed. Yeah, thanks, Dan. So I'm going to be referencing uh, a study that just was published earlier this year, 2019, in clinical toxicology. Uh, it's simply titled Acute Cannabis Toxicity. Um, and I'll try and keep it brief. I think most authors will <laughs> go on and on about their own work. But um, essentially what we in Oregon uh, wanted to do, because we were in a bit of a unique um, situation, privileged in that Oregon was the fourth U.S. state uh, to uh, approve legalization of recreational cannabis. And to put this in context, medicinal cannabis has been sort of approved uh, in many states over many, many years. Actually, Oregon was, I believe, one of the, if not the first state to decriminalize medicinal cannabis use back in the 70s. Um, but Colorado uh, was the first state uh, to legalize recreational cannabis use. Um, here in Oregon, uh, which was actually preceded by Alaska, um, and remember that's in our catchment area. So we have the third and fourth states um, that legalized recreational cannabis use uh, and uh, collected within this study. So kind of an, an exciting time and place to be as far as studying cannabis. So um, what we sought to do uh, was take advantage of this time and place. There was a ballot measure in November of 2014 here in Oregon which was approved and allowed the uh, legalization of recreational cannabis use um, and like I said that passed in late 2014 and generally speaking the strategy was to roll out um, in a <laughs> uh, pun was not intended there um, <laughs> but in a in a sort of graduated approach utilize the um, medicinal cannabis infrastructure uh, and then transition into more of a recreational retail dispensary format. So the OLCC or the Oregon Liquor Control Commission um, were, are the ones that sort of control the permitting uh, of dispensaries uh, and to kind of keep some control over it. Um, the idea was to kind of uh, 
slowly phase in recreational retailers. Anyway, uh, that just means that we sort of jumped in and we started doing a uh, um, prospective observational trial, collecting data here uh, from the Oregon Poison Center, which included, again, calls from Alaska. Um, Peri-legalization, by that I mean after the ballot measure was passed in both states uh, and uh, after recreational cannabis was available, but um, both before and after retail cannabis dispensaries had opened. Um, so it's a 16-month uh, study um, during which we prospectively con uh, collected data from exposures as reported um, to the Oregon Poison Center. What we found, we collected 253 individual exposures. This was after controlling for um, multiple like polypharmacy exposures. Um, informational calls, dog exposures or other pets, um, all sorts of things that are listed in figure one as far as the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And we were focusing specifically and exclusively in on acute exposure. So people who called in with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome or other signs or symptoms of chronic cannabis use were excluded from the study. What we really wanted to know was what are the products associated with and clinical signs and symptoms associated with acute cannabis use. So we collected um, data based on this um, uh, instrument, this data instrument that we developed, hence it's a prospective observational study, and we use this data instrument with our spies here in the Poison Center, um, instructing them to sort of fill it out, contact the on-call uh, toxicologists, the fellows and the staff were all briefed. Um, there was a separate data collection form. There's a key cut that we use in our um, data collection. Uh, and then afterward, I ended up flagging all of the charts during the 16-month period that had anything to do with uh, reference to cannabis in any form. Reviewed those charts. Um, when possible, I got a hold of the uh, hospital chart associated with the exposure. Um, in order to sort of try and get the most robust information throughout. Um, and then we used some basic um, statistics to apply, nothing terribly fancy there. Uh, also in the methods section, you'll see sort of some of the terminology that we propose. Um, and I think just for the general sort of um, audience here, it's important that um, to refer to things as specifically as possible. So there are, um, Cannabis refers to uh, plants initially, and those plants have multiple dozens of uh, cannabinoid chemicals, of which the uh, most well-known and primary psychoactive component is THC. There's also CBD, CBN, a bunch of different cannabinoids. Um, but cannabis refers to the overarching um, substance. THC is a molecule and oftentimes gets uh, sort of referenced in place of cannabis. Marijuana gets thrown around. Historically, marijuana refers to plant material or biologic um, uh, material. But as I think most people are already aware, cannabis now comes in a variety of different forms, including liquid concentration products um, and solid or semi-solid resin and other concentrated products. So we sort of proposed what we felt was a good uh, nomenclature for those um, dividing it into uh, botanic material 
edible products, and that, that is products that are intended for edible consumption, not just things that get eaten or ingested. Um, and then finally, concentrated products, which can be further divided into liquid concentrates uh, or resin material. So, and then we, we also tried to look uh, and break down who is exposed by age category, um, and we tried to divide it into children or less than 12 years of, old, of age, and then adolescents 12 to 18, and then adults over 18. Um, and then we sort of also had some modified age categories because recreational cannabis use is legalized in the states of Alaska and Oregon only for individuals older than 21, but medicinal cannabis is uh, allowed uh, for individuals 18 or older. So it gets a little bit confusing, but when trying to focus primarily on recreational cannabis, we wanted to tease out, well, the people who are under the legal age of recreational use, where might they be getting their cannabis? And so we tried to identify ownership sources, the terminology we use, which basically refers to whose cannabis was it that the person in question was exposed to. Tried to collect a bunch of other data, including um, clinical effects, vital signs, symptoms, broke those all down, where the call was coming from, where the patient ended up being evaluated, if at all, in a healthcare system, what treatments were administered, uh, where they were dispositioned, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, um, we, you know, we, we really tried, we had grand ambitions to collect product information um, because as people are buying and using recreational cannabis products, uh, the thinking is they should have some product information, dose, et cetera, on the product label. Um, and so we asked everybody uh, who called in if they knew what dose they were exposed to, if they still had the product uh, packaging. Um, and then we also took that, we solicited um, follow-up calls um, to try and get more information later on. I, I did uh, all of the follow-up calls. So, um, uh, you know, ambitious in scope. And what we found were, um, over the 16-month period, uh, 253 cases. Um, including 71 children. That represented about 28% of our included cases. Again, that's less than 12 years old. 42 adolescents, or 16%. That's 12 to 17 years of age. And then 140 adults, roughly 55% of the cases. That was older than or equal to 18 years. Um, I won't belabor a lot of the points. It would be silly for me to just regurgitate a bunch of data that's here in narrative and table form. Um, but you can look at, uh, we, what we did with the paper is kind of divide up the results into two sections. The exposures by age and trying to uh, tease out um, statistically significant or um, non-statistically significant but trending data about what the clinical effects were uh, or the exposure details were by age. So for instance, um, children are exposed to edible products by and large. In fact, everybody in the study, um, the majority were exposed to edible products. Children in particular are unintentionally exposed, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. You know, a four-year-old doesn't intend to overdose on cannabis. Um, but that's in contrast to adolescents that had um, more of a, an intentional exposure pattern, and then adults, it was almost all intentional. Um, children are... Um, exposed via ingestion rather than inhalation. Again, that shouldn't really surprise anybody. 
no four or five year old should be vaporizing. Um, and you can also imagine that there's a lot of you know exploratory behavior, hand to mouth behavior, um, a propensity among this children population for candies and cookies and desserts and things that are attractive um, in edible form. So that uh, we felt explained a lot of the exposure pattern. Later in the results section, uh, we break it down by exposures by product. So looking at um, any patterns um, uh, based on whether it was loose leaf botanic material or the edible material or uh, more of the concentrated, including the resins or the liquids. Um, and then finally, uh, in table form, you get exposure details in table one, um, and that's broken down by product type and route of exposure and intent and manufacturing source. Uh, and by the way, manufacturing source re refers to whether the cannabis uh, involved in the exposure came from uh, a dispensary or a retailer, uh, whether it was commercially produced, uh, in contrast to homemade production, so people making their own uh, cannabis butters, et cetera, at home, um, which we refer to as homemade or homegrown versus retailer or dispensary. Uh, and then we did collect some vital signs, um, unfortunately in the minority of cases, but what we did collect is presented here, um, and then uh, their disposition uh, as well. In table two, you have a breakdown of clinical effects by age um, and by um, organ system. And so uh, THC being the primary psychoactive component, you'd expect that the primary organ system involved with cannabis exposures would be neurotoxicity, and you'd be correct. Um, uh, it was by and large the, um, the single most um, uh, frequent reported clinical effect, upwards of uh, 80 to 85%. Um, and you can kind of see the breakdown. I will just sort of highlight for you that in general what we found was that children, again under the age of 12, ended up experiencing more central nervous system sedation. Adults experienced far more central nervous system excitation. And astutely you might wonder, well, sure, but a sedated adult isn't likely to call the poison center because they're sedated. Um, and so we, it may be true that we undercaptured or underreported uh, sedation in the, ad, in the adult population. Um, but curiously, uh, adolescents, again 12 to 18 years of age, had uh, this interesting um, mix of CNS sedation and excitation which seemed to be relatively equivalent and with no, at least to me, obvious uh, predictive factors. Um, there were some other clinical effects. GI, upset, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, etc., uh, and then some respiratory effects. The respiratory depression was rare, but in a couple of cases very significant, and it were, was responsible for the three cases of intubation. That was two kids and one adult, um, described in part in Table 3, uh, which includes all eight subjects in the study that were admitted to an intensive care unit. Um, again, three of those, uh, two infants and an adult, uh, were intubated. They were all exposed to a concentrated product, um, and uh, all of them did well. We did have one death uh, in the study, um, which we had previously presented um, as an abstract at a national conference, which was a, a male who was vaporizing concentrated um, cannabis, and he had unrecognized underlying um, coronary artery disease and suffered a fatal, 
myocardial uh, infarction with uh, ventricular dysrhythmias that were refractory to uh, ACLS care. So, <laughs> where does that leave us? There's a lot of information here. Um, really what our goals were were to try and sort out what um, uh, other states in the perilegalization process might expect uh, with acute cannabis exposures um, and how to at least begin to address uh, some of the epidemiologic and product factors that, um, that might be modifiable to prevent harm, particularly in the pediatric population. Yeah, no, it's a great article, great, again, epidemiology, again, a prospectively collected project uh, that we ran through the Poison Center. And fortunately, the problem was everyone keeps saying, marijuana is fine, it's fine, it doesn't hurt anybody, it doesn't kill anybody. I'm not sure we proved that it killed anybody because this one arrest was probably due to coronary artery disease, but we clearly showed that people ended up in the ICU. We clearly, you, I shouldn't say, we, you showed that um, you know, people get innovated, especially children eat, uh, eating butane hash oil and liquid concentrates. And so the, you know, the product and the, the dose makes a difference. <laughs> to go back to a, an old toxicologic uh, truism. Um, so to just say smoking a marijuana uh, cigarette joint doesn't kill you, that may or may not be true, but smoking concentrated butane hash oil certainly has its physiologic uh, downsides and uh, the ability to breathe and possibly the ability to oxygenate your cardiac muscle if you have type stenotic lesions there. Um, so I'll caution as other states plow into this, and I think how many states at this point have recreational, but there's quite a few. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, we were um, up there in the first handful of states, and it's the number of calls we get has, I don't think, has calmed down a lot. We seem to go through peaks and valleys, but it seems that we're still always getting calls about yeah. these issues. Well, I actually spoke a little bit about that this morning. So yeah. we do, each year, we're seeing more, mm -hmm. more calls to, uh, of all ages to regarding cannabis exposures. Um, and the, the alarming trend within that trend is that under the age of five, the increase seems to be steady and the um, rate of increase each year is increasing. Mm -hmm. So for every three cases last year of cannabis exposures in uh, pediatric, in kids under the age of six, we had four exposures this year from 2017 and 2018. And each year just keeps steadily increasing. Yeah. I'll say at least on the <coughs> commercial dispensary side, I mean, I think we're trying to do what we can like, which is having sealed containers and warnings given out and making sure you're 21 years old and all these other things. But as with the history, let's say, of cigarettes and alcohol, that doesn't always end up in the hands of the end user. Um, um, change gears a, a tiny bit. Um, you know, if you smoke one thing, you're likely to smoke another thing. And so, uh, you know, this is an article that attempts to explore what are the comorbidities of smoking both cannabis and tobacco. So our pharmacist, uh, Kelly, is going to tell us about that. Thank you. So I have a paper today entitled A Review of the Additive Health Risk of Cannabis and Tobacco Co-Use. It's published in 2016 in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. And it points out that about in a recent national survey, about 90% of those who have smoked cannabis have also smoked tobacco. So we wanted to look at some of the outcomes of the co-ingestion versus just consuming one versus the other product. So some of the outcomes looked at here are carbon monoxide. 
the THC and nicotine exposure, topography, cellular damage, and exposure to the other constituents typically seen. So if we start out with carbon monoxide levels, there were four studies included in this review. The first one um, examined a group of teenagers who were in a tobacco cessation program. And this study included was kind of interesting. They had an average age of 15. They needed to smoke at least 10 cigarettes a day to be in the study, but uh, that is not further broken down. And they compared if the teenagers utilized uh, blunts, another form of marijuana consumption, or self-reported no consumption in the last week. And they looked at the carbon monoxide levels and found that those who had consumed blunts had higher carbon monoxide levels than other forms. Um, and there was a second study that this larger review cited that looked at a blunt versus a joint um, and found that, once again, the blunts had higher carbon monoxide levels, those who had smoked the blunt, sorry, not the object itself. And um, so that seems to be a commonality there, which they think might just have to do with how it's consumed, um, the topography of consuming it, essentially. And the other two studies that looked at carbon monoxide here um, looked at one with cannabis before consuming mar or tobacco or not, and one that kind of alternated which one was consumed first, and they found no difference in carbon monoxide level. So you can't, from these four studies included in this review, we don't seem to be able to draw conclusions about how one necessarily impacts the other except that it looks like how you utilize your marijuana may impact your carbon monoxide levels, which I think follows some sound logic. Uh, the next outcome that was looked at were THC and, THC and nicotine exposure. Um, so here, uh, the first study that is cited had its participants wear a nicotine patch while consuming marijuana and found that the THC levels uh, were not altered based on the utilization of a nicotine patch or not. And um, there were two other studies that looked at co-ingestion versus tobacco use alone. And one found that there were lower cottonine levels um, in the co-ingestion, suggesting perhaps an altered metabolism from those who utilized both marijuana and tobacco but another study found no difference. So perhaps there's a difference in the participants that were included or the methods. Once again, it's kind of hard to draw conclusions overall from what's presented. Mm -hmm. uh, the third item looked at here was the topography, kind of the style of how deep of a breath you take, how long you hold it for. And they thought that perhaps someone who initially started with marijuana, where you typically take a deeper breath and hold it longer, that might alter how they smoke tobacco, and it would result in different carbon monoxide levels, or just, um, but this was also self-reported topography. How deep of a breath are you taking in the moment? It was not, uh, I don't believe, quantified necessarily. Mm -hmm. And they found that it did not alter it, whether there was a co-ingestion or just utilizing one substance. The next outcome examined in this review was cellular damage, which I found to be quite interesting. 
they showed that co-users had similar oxidant, oxidant levels, which are produced by pulmonary alveolar macrophages and related to the pathophysiology of emphysema. So the co-users um, had similar levels compared to tobacco-only users, which we know have this disease process, and that marijuana-only users had similar levels to those who did not smoke anything. So this suggests that using marijuana may not result in that damage, but I would hope for some more publications before I could firmly draw that conclusion. And the last outcome was another kind of interesting thing to look at was the constituents in the smoke. So they actually hooked up a machine to mimic smoking um, 30 tobacco versus marijuana cigarettes and looked at the constituents of the smoke and found that they were somewhat similar. There were still some heavy metals present, some organics, some carbonyl compounds, all that would kind of be expected from combustion. <coughs> but there were some slight differences, and this is outlined in Table 1 in this study under the <coughs> Moyer et al. Um, 2008. So overall from this review, it kind of shows a sparsity in the data for a somewhat common occurrence and calls for more research to be done so that we can understand the impact of co-ingestion. Yeah, do you think with both of these things being as prevalent as they were, there'd be more research to say what smoking both together does, but unlimited amount of data be a few years old really doesn't suggest that smoking marijuana makes tobacco worse, although tobacco is bad enough by itself. Um, they kind of, at the very end, kind of poke the hornet's nest of what we're going to talk about next, which is uh, what about those clever people who take liquid cannabis products and stick it in their e-cigarettes? Mm -hmm. And what does that really do to sort of supercharge their experience? So I, I, this article probably has a cuter title than actually good data, but it's about anna-vaping neologism <coughs> to sort of describe that phenomenon. Lauren? Sure, thank you, Zane. So this is a study that came out of um, Switzerland, I'm sorry, uh, Switzerland in 2016 entitled Drug Vaping Applied to Cannabis is quote-unquote cannabaping, a therapeutic alternative to marijuana. Now, the frame of their study was rather interesting because they were taking it from the perspective of uh, trying to administer marijuana for um, medicinal purposes, seemed to be kind of a background, and they were theorizing, they were um, kind of introducing this idea that this may be another way to administer cannabis, and it actually touches it, um, on what we were discussing with electronic cigarettes, that perhaps when you're not um, uh, inhaling um, carbonaceous burnt plant material that perhaps we're going to get less of these other compounds that can potentially be carcinogenic. So by converting this to, and maybe this is going to be a safer way, um, the study that they did, this was rather a dense article with um, kind of with numerous different points that they wanted to make about um, kind of making cannabis quote unquote a thing. Um, and then also saying like, you know, how do you prepare it? What are theoretical methods with the saying, like, you know, is this a, something potentially a patient could do if they were trying to, like, obtain THC concentrations for a therapeutic benefit? Um, and then they explain um, a little bit more about 
uh, quote unquote dabbing or using butane hashish oil, which is a concentrated cannabis extract that has anywhere from like 15 to 30 times higher concentrations of THC and how that can be introduced into um, a vaporizing equipment system. What's interesting and uh, they go into a lot of the chemistry. So for instance, if you just take this concentrated material in order to get the THC component, it first has to be um, exposed to a very hot surface to become decarboxylated. And so they're theorizing, you know, like, uh, is this electronic cigarette kind of mechanism able to reach that? And they found that it's able to um, both, and then sometimes people prepare the concentrated product by using a blowtorch and then introduce it to their electronic cigarettes to get just the THC instead of the mixed uh, decarboxylated um, pre-product that is not as active as just the plain THC. got very complicated kind of in terms of the chemistry. The main thing is, it's a thing. Mm -hmm. You can introduce, I mean, I guess they get very, very complicated into like measuring the temperature. How long did it take to get to the peak of the temperature? And what they say is like, you know, you take a, they're kind of testing different like inhalation systems and then they compare that to the vapor that comes out. They compare that to essentially a marijuana cigarette or a joint. And then they showed a picture of it at the end with uh, the two electronic systems that they use. And essentially what they're saying is this is possible. You can, and they did most of this on these concentrated products, um, like the hashish oil product. And so you would put in different percentages. And the main thing is can you dissolve this in the electronic cigarette refill preparation? And as we were touching on earlier, they're glycerin or propylene glycol. And so the problem is, is that the, uh, the concentrated marijuana product, I'm sorry, rather the um, concentrated like hashish product is very oil-based and is not really, um, readily solubilized in this material unless it's propylene glycol. So it's not, it doesn't dissolve into the glycerin products and it doesn't dissolve into the other aqueous type solutions. It only works more readily with um, propylene glycol. If you wanted to get a like more concentrated product. And the thing was that they're, and then taking a, like a three second puff um, is kind of their average, like I guess what they assumed a person would do to inhale the product. And that would reach a temperature that would produce like the main THC component at the end with some decarboxylation of the THCA product, which is what it is previously. Um, but the problem is because at such a brief period, they estimate that to get to like a therapeutic, a quote unquote therapeutic blood or body concentration exposure, um, this cannabis product, you would have to take a hundred puffs of like a typical solution, which is uh, very, very, I guess, like it would take a long time to get in, in the way that they're proposing it, which is they're very studied, like 5% solution, 10%. And they say, you know, it is theoretically possible that somebody out there could put in a more concentrated product to obtain a recreational high. And this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. And they kind of say that at the end of the paper. But essentially, they say that propylene glycol is um, what it's more soluble if, if you use propylene glycol. And um, and then their other problem that they wanted to point out is that when you're using electronic cigarettes with THC, in order to get, use, if you use a concentrated product that needs to reach this certain temperature, you are using the electronic cigarette at a temperature that's higher than it was originally kind of supposed to be used 
by like at is kind of like a summary of what they were saying. Um, and so the problem is when you're superheating the other components, you are potentially exposing yourself to volatile organic compounds and um, other byproducts of combustion from the products that are in there mixed in the solution. And so their concern is that they just kind of introduced the idea. They got a little bit of data that they were produced at some of the higher temperatures, but it's hard. This was not a human model. This was kind of like this um, electronic model where they kind of made a, a puff and then collected it. Um, so essentially, um, in conclusion, can you put cannabis in electronic cigarette refills? Yes. Is it soluble? Not very soluble. You'll get a lot of solid products at the bottom unless you use propylene glycol, and even then it's not that soluble, but that helps you. Um, it tends to be a lower concentration of THC than you would get from using a quote-unquote marijuana cigarette. Um, it potentially exposes you to volatile organic compounds that are created from combustion of the other products in the solution. Um, but is this a way to for somebody to therapeutically receive cannabis? Yes. I think that was kind of yeah. It's kind of like it was a little bit. It was a kind of a tough article. Yeah, no, I agree. There's all sorts of data they were throwing around, but I think you're like you summarize. The bottom line is, if you're thinking of doing this to get higher, it probably doesn't work unless you want to take like a hundred puffs of this product, completely mess up your e-cigarette device, so mm -hmm. it's not going to be useful for anything anymore. And truthfully, it's, you're probably just better off rolling a marijuana cigarette and smoking it because it's going to give you what you really want without all these volatile organics that are by necessary have to be added to the product. So uh, probably not good for those who are just looking to quote recreationally use BHO or concentrates in an e-cigarette device and maybe if you're looking for it for the medicinal use you're still probably better off with edibles or other means of acquiring your THC component. So although a interesting thing and I'm sure people are trying this throughout the country and the world right now, it's probably not going to be that much better. And like I said, some of these may overheat and actually burn people as well. To change gears a little bit, I think we've said we could go on for forever, hours and hours about both cannabis and um, tobacco. But I wanted to touch on a couple of other little side issues not to be forgotten. Uh, and one of which is smokeless tobacco. We tend to ignore chewing tobacco. And our resident from emergency medicine is going to tell us a little bit about its risk in cardiac and sports medicine. Yeah, um, so this was a study out of France in 2014 that was published in the Archives of Cardiovascular Disease, and it looked at the effects of smokeless tobacco in sport and on the heart. Um, they specifically looked at risk factors of cardiovascular events and whether nicotine can increase the risk of cardiovascular outcomes especially in sports, um, they kind of reviewed the current knowledge in literature regarding smokeless tobacco and it being a risk factor um, in heart disease, and then compared um, patterns of consumption and the context in which athletes are using smokeless tobacco. So just a little bit about uh, pharmacology. Um, smokeless tobacco, it includes chewing tobacco, spit tobacco, dry snuff, which they sniff into the nose, and moist snuff, which is placed between the cheek and gum. Um, nicotine is the most abundant alkaloid component in tobacco. It binds to nicotinic receptors, um, releases norepi, epinephrine, acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, and nitric oxide. And most of the cardiovascular effects are due to the secretion of catecholamines. 
Um, plasma and nicotine concentration in smokeless tobacco actually um, shows a peak that's nearly as high as that obtained by cigarette smoking. Um, the article goes on to detail um, in detail regarding use in athletes. Um, so consumption-wise, uh, smokeless tobacco most frequently is uh, used by baseball players in the U.S. Um, in, Scandinav in Scandinavia, it's very common in team sport activities, specifically hockey. Um, and apparently Sweden is the only European country where snuff is allowed and represents almost 50% of the total tobacco consumption. Um, in sports, uh, they consider nicotine performance enhancing because it diminishes anxiety, enhances concentration, and favors weight control. Um, they did say uh, quite a few articles here. Um, of note, Mark Clay in 2009, um, they did a study that was held during the Ice Hockey World Championship, um, and they found that nicotine and its metabolites were detectable in 50% of, of the uh, 72 urine samples and that two of those athletes had very high concentrations, suggesting that they were using it for doping. Hmm. Um, they also included a meta-analysis, which had studies from Heisman, Edwards, and Landers, um, and they looked at the performance-enhancing effects in sports compared to performance of smokeless tobacco users and non-users. Um, they found that nicotine improved fine motor abilities, um, alerting attention, accuracy, and response time, and uh, orientating attention response time, um, but they found that the movements um, in sport were similar in smokeless tobacco users and non-users after nicotine absorption. Um, smokeless tobacco did improve fine motor ability um, and the users did score better with the ability to face cognitively challenging tasks and to manage stressful situations. Um, and then another study from Van Duzer and Raven um, they found that, they looked at more of the harmful effects and they found that smokeless tobacco can impair anaerobic performance and lactate accumulation occurs earlier in those athletes. Um, further on, they then described three of the main mechanisms that are likely the root of the harmful cardiovascular effects found in smokeless tobacco. Um, first, it's pro-arrhythmic. So nicotine is dose-dependent and, and has polyphasic effects, mainly mediated through catecholamine release. So it can cause prolonged action potentials um, and membrane depolarization has a lot of direct effects on the anion or ionic channels, mainly potassium channels. Um, it can decrease the heart rate and then the ventricular fibrillation threshold is also decreased. Um, also it can cause endothelial dysfunction, so it impairs endothelial vasodilation via the catecholamine release and oxidative stress. Um, and smokeless tobacco, they, it appears that they have the same endothelial dysfunction compared to cigarette smokers. Also aggravates oxidative stress and the pro-coagulant state. And then table three, if you guys have the article pulled up, it does have some hemodynamic effects, which were a little bit confusing to me, but it looks like mainly has a negative, negative effect um, during exercise. So during the submaximal exercise period, heart rate is increased, blood pressure increased, and then the stroke volume is diminished in smokeless tobacco users. Um, and then the other main change that I saw was that during the recovery period, heart rate in smokeless tobacco users remains elevated for a longer period of time when compared to those who do not use. Um, so overall in conclusion of this article, um, I think they suggested that um, smokeless tobacco definitely has harmful effects 
on human health, um, especially on the cardiovascular system. Um, athletes could be considered to have an increased risk during sports given the prorhythmic properties. It promotes the endothelial dysfunction and can lead to negative hemodynamic changes. Um, they also recommended that smokeless tobacco should continue to be prohibited in sport um, given that it has performance enhancing properties um, and harmful health effects. Yeah, they lay out a pretty good case, although, again, with limited amount of, of data that, you know, it's, this should be a world anti-doping agency banned substance in that it has adverse effects and performance enhancing effects, and just like taking amphetamines, let's say, although it's an extreme example, would enhance your performance but put you at risk for adverse cardiac uh, effects. Uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, obviously, I had no idea that Scandinavian hockey players do nothing, <laughs> but um, hey, I learned a little something about that um, you know, in different places of the world. Speaking of places where it's cold and you may want to use smokeless tobacco, we're going to finish out with something that comes to uh, our attention infrequently, but it's definitely a unique Oregon, Alaska, Guam Poison Center. Uh, kind of call, and this is uh, an article about ICMIC, I-Q-M-I-K, which is a unique form of smokeless tobacco that is used in Alaska. This is an older article, only that this stuff is not written about very much, it's from 2005, and basically lays a little bit of groundwork that says Alaska natives are very high with tobacco misuse. Current cigarette smoking was as high as 41%, compare that to the general population is only 23% at the time. Um, but they tend to like using smokeless tobacco, and even more so, about 10% of Alaska Native women like using smokeless tobacco compared to like 0.2% of the rest of the U.S. population. Now, all this does increase risk of cancer, special oral, oral cancer with smokeless uh, tobacco. So this um, person who went up there kind of as a social worker interventionalist to find out some of the ethnobiology uh, and ethnopharmacology uh, behind uh, this drug, interviewed a bunch of people of Yupik uh, and Athabascan Indian origin in Western Alaska in one of the clinics up there that we serve, the Yukon Kwashkokwin Health Corporation which is um, in western Alaska, and they got verbal consent from all the participants to ask them a variety of questions. Um, basically, just to kind of go back a little bit, basically what ICMIC is, is they take burnt ash and mix it with tobacco and use it as a smokeless tobacco chew mm -hmm. um, to enhance their concentration. Um, it's seen not just in Alaska, but in western Siberia, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, other places. Um, and basically, um, it's not talked about a lot. Uh, the uh, ash is often comes from a fungus ash that itself has no psychoactive or pharmacokinetic properties, but it's burnt together. And so she talked to all these folks and basically um, found out that um, the uh, they purchased some of this at a local store and they checked the pH of it, and the pH was high enough that you would have a substantial amount of nicotine absorption. Mm -hmm. um, nicotine concentrations and alkaloid, uh, alkalinity of the smokeless tobacco uh, was important in del drug delivery. Mm -hmm. um, they talked to several people who were considered elders um, in this um, village, 
Um, and they said, uh, this is the first time anybody ever asked them any of this in their multiple aged years. Nobody ever came in with sort of a health outreach and talked to them about the use of this. Um, and several of them said things that were very profound, like I became aware of myself as a person the first time I ever started using tobacco and things like that. Um, the, uh, the punk fungus is the preferred plant to use, although they sometimes burn alder or willow uh, bushes or even driftwood to make the ash and then they mix it in with uh, the tobacco. Um, they kind of collect this because it grows near the birch trees. They have large sacks of this which they sell at the time, which is about 15 years ago. The cost was about $150 to buy um, a gallon-sized plastic bag full of um, it can be stored in, you know, Ziploc bags or any other sort of thing that's convenient. Um, women and young uh, girls were most commonly described as the people who made these mixtures. A lot of times they would put it in their mouth and wet it down, and a lot of them, when asked, said, yeah, making it this way made them sick. Um, they spit it into a container and then they share this with their family and friends. Um, and uh, nausea, vomiting, or a high or a buzz was felt in people who were in the preparation process. Um, many of the female elders said they used this during their pregnancies, and no one ever told them, don't do that or it's bad for you. Um, there was no health outreach to them. Um, and none of the people who talked to ever was tried to quit or, or was told they should quit or there were any adverse effects. And one of them said, why would I want to stop? Um, it's good for you, uh, essentially. Um, so it's an interesting un understanding that nobody really went out and talked to folks about what they were using. It's a health hazard in this unique um, community. Um, it suggests that women tend to use it more and tend to make it more than men, and therefore have more acute effects as they're making it, but may have more risks of um, the chronic issues with cancer, which they didn't really look into this in this study with oral cancers. Um, their conclusions were the early production of tobacco products such as Ikmic is common. It's acceptable throughout life. No one ever talks about it as being a bad thing. Most of them perceive it as safer than smoking. Um, and it's just part of the culture that probably needs to be addressed with outreach. Now, that being said, we did get a call of somebody who died in the context of having used this, I don't think it was due to this. I think it was like true and true, but unrelated, where someone probably had coronary disease and um, was also a chronic ICNIC user and then used quote, a lot of ICNIC just prior to his cardiovascular collapse. But um, one more form of tobacco and yet another cultural area that can be misused and you know perhaps one that should take a a little bit of notice of, especially with our unique perspective here as the Alaska Poison Center amongst our other public health missions. So, any other questions or comments from anyone? If not, I thank everyone, including our authors in the room, Matt Noble and Adrian Hughes, for talking about their articles and maybe an incentive to the rest of our folks who build on our prior research of public health epidemiology with uh, abusable products. So until next time, this is Dane Horowitz from the Oregon Poison Center crew. Uh, we'll talk to you next month. Very, very